This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. I'm really looking forward to this episode, Eric. We, this is all you. You were the one that was like, we've got to talk about white label issuers. What is that? Yeah, so a white label issuer, um, not sure if there's a perfect metaphor, but say you have an idea for an ETF, but you don't really have a big company and a lot of infrastructure, um, nor do you want to spend the time on that or the money. But you want an ETF out there that is your idea. There are some companies now that you can go to. They have all everything taken care of for you. All you do is give them some money. They do all of the sort of uh, infrastructure work on, on your fund. They hook you up with even lead market makers and the whole nine yards. There's a lot going on beneath the surface, which we should, we're going to explore in this episode. At the end of the day, boom, you have an ETF. It's trading on all the exchanges. And then your main job is to market it. Right. And if it's active, I guess you have to pick the stocks and do your strategy, but they take care of everything else. So this is called the white label business. And it's it's big. It's growing quickly. Um, there's the three big ones we have on today who I'm calling the big three in their own regard. But the reason I wanted to explore this is Goldman just mentioned they're going to start a white label business themselves. This was major. This is the first massive firm that saw this as a potential. And if Goldman has their own clients saying, hey, I want to launch an ETF. Can you help me? That is such a good sign for the ETF industry if Goldman sees this. So, But these, the people we have on today have been doing this for a long time. And they're also people who, they know everything going on in the ETF business. Like, they're, they're, they just have a lot of, have an interesting seat to the ETF game. Joining us for this episode, Wes Gray of Alpha Architect, Mike Venuto, Title Financial Group, and Garrett Stevens of Exchange Traded Concepts. This time on Trillions, white label ETFs. Wes, Mike, Garrett, welcome to Trillions. Thank you. Awesome to be here again. Likewise, appreciate it. Okay, Mike, I've got an idea for an ETF. I come to you, you give me an ETF in a box and then I get to wrap it. This is like perfect for the holidays, right? I just put Goldman wrapping paper on it. <laughs> yeah. Let's not put Goldman wrapping paper on it. Let's put title wrapping paper on it. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a chassis, it's a wrapper, it's a structure, right? And it's just a better way to deliver things. And the most successful ETFs we've seen are ones that already have a successful idea and a less successful wrapper. And if we can just enhance the return to the end investor by putting it in an ETF, it's a win-win for everybody. Um, let's let's rewind the clock here a little bit, and um, you know, Garrett, I, I want to talk to you because 
in my mind, I could be wrong, but you were the first white label issuer, I believe. I remember once writing, it might even been my first book, I wrote how Faith Shares, that you had a company called Faith Shares, and it didn't work out, so you used your exemptive relief to help others launch their funds, and you had this huge success, and I, um, I, I, I wanted to use the word resurrected because of the sort of, I was like, they resurrected themselves into this new entity. And it's, you know, a great story of when one door closes, another one opens. Can you talk about that process and how you sort of got the idea for this? Yeah, so that's exactly what happened. You know, as we launched the five faith shares funds. They were just not successful in gathering assets. And, you know, it was a classic story of starting a new business and it, you know, taking twice as long and costing twice as much as it was supposed to originally when, when we launched the business, you know, you still had to get exemptive relief back in those days. So this was 2008, 2009. Um, if you remember the market environment in 2008, when we were trying to raise startup capital to launch a new financial services company, it was really terrible timing for that, but we got it done. 2009, we'd finally got our exemptive relief. It took about a year uh, for the SEC to grant that. Uh, we spent nearly a million dollars in legal fees alone to get uh, the exemptive relief back in those days. You know, those added expenses and added time took away from, frankly, the viability of the products once they got to market. And, you know, we ended up closing three of the five funds after about 18 months. When we did that, we had other firms start calling us basically to say, look, can we buy you? We just want your exemptive relief, right? We don't want to wait a year with the SEC. We want to get to market faster. Because once you have that exemptive relief, you can launch funds in 75 days. Um, that's the statutory review period the SEC staff has to review a new prospectus filing. So it's much faster. And we had all the infrastructure there. You know, the multiple series trust model had been around in the mutual fund world for a long time, but no one had done anything like it in the ETF business at that point. So, you know, once we had people calling saying, hey, can we just buy your infrastructure? That's really where, you know, I had the idea like, look, why don't we use what we have here to launch funds for other people? Because if someone had had this out and available when we launched ours, we could have saved a ton of time, a ton of startup capital and been to market, you know, a lot faster and probably had a much higher chance of success than than what we ended up with. So that's how we got here. And to just talk about real quick your first couple clients. I when I think of you, I think of Robo, um, and when I think of white label ETFs that are hits, Robo again is one of them that comes to mind. There's been a couple pretty big hits. Uh, was that the first one, or how, how did the first couple come about? And, and did did they come to you yeah, with the that... idea for Robo, or were you like, hey, I got this thing? <laughs> yeah, no, no, they they came to us. So um, they were not the first. They actually, the very first fund we launched was YMLP. Um, an MLP ETF for a firm called Yorkville back at the time. Um, that one actually did very well. It ended up with something like 400 million, something like that, before they ended up selling that uh, to Van Eck after a few years, had a successful exit there. Um, Alpha Clone uh, was one of the other ones we launched early. Uh, that one ended up doing doing well also, a few hundred million dollars in that fund. Um, and, then, and then, of course, Robo was the biggest um, uh, success. You know, it, it's typical of the ETF business, right, in, in that fund. So it you know, organically picked up, I think it was 90 or $100 million within the first 60 or 90 days. But then it sat there, you know, for three or four years at that level, um, just kind of churning, waiting, building a track record. And then its theme hit, right? It came into vogue. People started hearing on the news about drones and about robotics, you know, ruling warehouses and taking factory jobs. And everything was about that on the nightly news and everything. That fund picked up $2 billion the next year. 
after sitting at a hundred million for three or four years. One of their favorite and so that's, stories there. Yeah. Oh, you love to see. Yeah, I love yeah. when I love it's. A, I call it the indie feel good hit of the year. Robo was definitely that one year. Um, every year there's a couple, and uh, it's fun to watch because it's hard uh, to be an indie independent issuer or somebody using a white label. Um, you need a little luck. You need the stars to align, and um, it's nice when it happens because I want that part of the industry to thrive. So others want to take chances because the indie is where you see the innovation, in my opinion. Yeah, no, agree. And you know what's interesting about our our business and the funds that we launch is it's launched by experts in the field, right? It's not very often someone comes to us with an idea that they have you know they've never done before, which is different than a lot of the major issuers. You know, your iShares or, or some of these big firms are looking to launch products that they can market and sell. The people who come to us you know, our, our experts in what they do, our MLP fund was done by people who'd been investing in MLPs for many years. The robo guys were investors in this space and knew it and could not find an ETF that fit what they wanted to do. The uranium fund we launched, you know, again, somebody who's intimately familiar with that industry had been in it for many years. So you come up with better products, in my opinion, when you have experts working on it and wanting to launch it and coming through someone like us, rather than a marketing team trying to decide, you know, what product they think they can sell and trying to, you know, throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. Okay, Wes, I'm going to bring you in here. I've got a big idea. Maybe no expert, but I got ideas, um, and uh, so I'm going to give you a call. What happens next, and what do you look for to bring successful products to market? Yeah, so <laughs> unfortunately, we've been surviving in this terrible business called ETF for you know almost 10 years now. So usually on our first call, my job is to anti-sell going into the ETF business, right? Like, this is so expensive. You got to have five years ready to go. You got to light money on fire. If you don't, if you're not ready for war, just go back so home. You, so right? you're, the, so cold, that's you're my, the cold shower. Yes, I am the cold shower because we don't want people uh, to get into something that they're not really ready for, right? Um, and and even though obviously our objective of our ETF white level platform is to lower barriers to entry to allow a lot more people to you know, access this great uh, wrapper, it's, I just feel it's very important to make sure people understand that, you know, it's not a panacea. It's a lot of work, a lot of effort. But the good news is when you segment into people that, you know, they listen to your pain train story and they're, they're still standing there, that means they're probably pretty well fit to be successful in the ETF industry. I feel like I know you were in the military. I feel like this is the basic training. Uh, if you can make it through <laughs> those couple of weeks, uh, maybe you're good. Um, quick question. Explain to us, again, we'll stick with Wes on this one. What do you do? Um, so I have the idea. Mm-hmm. Let's say my idea is um, Philadelphia-based companies <laughs> you'd probably tell me to go yeah. away you'd probably cold shower yeah, me you, don't, you don't even need yeah, but a cold shower let's just assume one. i'm standing after your whole speech <laughs> um what are you going to do for me exactly yeah so you really there's there's kind of three areas of uh etf needs right there's legal compliance and just broad-based brain damage i call it uh there's portfolio management and train execution and then there's marketing and distribution right those are kind of like the three big levers you can pull so I, different white labels are different. We, what we do is we deal with all the brain damage. So the legal compliance regulatory component, we do all the portfolio manager train execution component, but the marketing and distribution, we keep that open architecture. And I think the, the gentleman on the call have, have actually offered those services, but that's our core focus is 
how the heck do we get you to market as cheap as humanly possible with full transparency and totally turnkey from an operational standpoint? But you've got to do the selling and distribution and everything. Okay, so um, Mike, when Wes gives someone a cold shower, um, maybe they come running to you. What do you do that's different than than what Wes does? Uh, that's a great question. You know, it's funny because all three of us share leads and put people back to each other. Um, you know, for some of these cold showers and for some of the things that different people want, uh, you know, for, for Eric, I just reserved the ticker CSTK for cheesesteak so we can do a Philly ETF. <laughs> um, no, so, uh, uh, no, what do we really do? So our, our process includes more of an assessment. We do kind of that McKinsey style report and we do come back with the same kind of thing that Wes or Garrett will saying, Hey, you're not ready or you are ready or you need this to be ready, right? So we we go through all four kind of buckets. We do strategy, product, uh, sales, and marketing, and we score everybody against everyone else we've ever done this to. Um, and then we come back and say, here's your pro forma. Here's your, your assessment score. And yes, we want to work with you or no, we think you should either go back to the drawing board or call Wes or call Garrett. And, you know, I, I guess a question for all you guys are you what you obviously do all this work for them? Is this an upfront cost or do you get like a percentage of the expense ratio? I guess I'll just all three of you start with Garrett. Yeah. So, you know, we do a lot of consultation with them upfront, right? There's a lot of education that goes into it. Let's figure out your product. Let's help you get the idea kind of nailed down here. Make sure we all like it. Make sure we can do it, frankly, right? With all the 40 act regulations involved. Once we're all comfortable with that and everyone's agreed, we're ready to get going. They do pay a setup fee to get the product to market. So that covers the legal, that covers any exchange listing fees. You know, we build custom websites, marketing materials, you know, all of those things to get you to market. That's a fixed fee for all of that. Once you get to market, then what we charge at ETC for our portion of it is a uh, number of basis points with an annual minimum. And then all of the other expenses to run the fund are just direct pass-throughs from the service providers. And so we break it all out, provide transparency on it. Um, we've just basically done a cost-plus model is how we operate. And are Wes, uh, Mike, you guys are similar? Uh, yeah, very similar. Setup fee and then a fixed cost and then declining BIPs cost as you get bigger with the objective of, of allowing the operators to basically leverage our operating leverage as much as possible. Yeah, so... Again, same model. Um, our slight differences are we do have add-on services, the marketing and sales that you can pay hard dollars for. And uh, we also offer fund financing, right? If somebody comes to us and has a great idea and wants to launch it but doesn't have the full financial backing, uh, in cases where we really like the idea, we'll put up our own economics and you know own a part of the profit. I think the key thing, though, for all three of us is none of us really make any money on the minimums, right? That's the brain damage, as Wes likes to call it, or I call it the headache business. The minimums are just there to pay for the, the you know, the day-to-day. The real way we make money is when our clients make money, right? Like, um, we are not interested in having a fund that stays at $25 million for six years. Like, that's not going to make us money or make the client happy. It's not going to make ETC happy. It's not going to make uh, ETF Architect happy or Alpha Architect happy. Um, so we're really partners with our clients at the end of the day, all three of us. You know, Joel, they're talking about this. It. I just went through the process of 
um, writing a book. They're like publishers. This reminds me a lot of the publishing business. Or the, yeah, you, you want hits, man. Yeah, and yes. one thing the publishers look for, and I've learned this over my, the two books I wrote, is a, is a platform. Do you have reach? You know, are you in the media? Do you go to conferences? Like, basically, can you sell the book? <laughs> it seems like there's a similar vibe here. I guess, um, let me go back to Mike, because somebody you just took on is this guy, um, uh, Meet Kevin, and he's a YouTuber with 2 million subscribers but he's not in the financial business. How much do you look for, say, can you bring your own assets like BYOA versus, hey, you've got this huge platform and we're, we'll roll the dice with you because you've got reach? Yeah. So the number one determining success of an ETF is seed capital, right? Like if you go through the, the list of all the hits, I mean, Robo as a hit, like, yes, but it's because they had like 90 million in seed capital and they waited for the market to come to them. And they're all great, awesome people with great knowledge in that space, but the market had to come to them and they had to survive through seed capital. So in absence of seed capital, call it, we, we pretty much tell anyone who doesn't have 20 million, you probably don't want to do this, right? Um, the, in absence, you have network or platform, right? SoFi's on our platform. We're on their platform. Meet Kevin, George Noble with what he does on Twitter Spaces, um, Adam Curran with his radio show for y'all. Like A platform is the closest substitute for seed capital. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I do want to talk about greatest hits because that's the fun part, right? So, Wes, if you had one hit that you were the most proud of, what would it be? I'm going to say the fund that started our ETF white label business, which would be Per Toll's Freedom Fund, um, oh, yeah. FRDM. And it's, you know, just it's just her, literally. Uh, and she's already got 270 mil in that fund. Maybe it's higher at this point. And I mean, you can kind of see the writing on the wall just based on number of emails and crates and activity that comes and, with that. And what so, was the, the pitch when she came to you? How how formed was it? 
Uh, it was very well formed. And, and long story short, you know, we'd been in the ETF business for a long, long time. And we run an asset manager business called Alp Architect. And we had no interest in ever opening our infrastructure to anybody because, you know, we just say, hey, we're a low cost infrastructure provider. Why would we want to give this to other people? And then Perth, who I known for probably five, six years prior, you know, she's always pitched me on freedom. And, you know, I obviously used to be in the Marine Corps and I'm a huge fan of, you know, go America, freedom, all that good stuff. And so I was obviously amiable to her idea uh, at the outset. And then finally, uh, you know, after enough strong arm and, and you know, twist of my elbow, uh, we said, fine, Perth, we're, we're going to do it. You're going to be our guinea pig into, you know, doing uh, ETF servicing for someone else. And so we kind of started it basically with her. Um, and so once we made that decision to engage in the business, you know, there was no looking back, you know, now the rest is history. But uh, I've always liked her idea. It was always very well baked. It's just like anything, when you launch a fund, you know, it's a long game thing. And she's been playing the long game and she's finally winning it. Mike, I'm going to ask you the same question. What, what's, the, what's the greatest hit that you're most proud of? I mean, we've had some awesome hits and I, I think I normally would just go with the biggest one like RPAR, but I'm going to bring out a real indie one. Um, there's this company, SP Funds. They were an $80 million RIA focused on Sharia compliant. They are our sleeper hit, right? Nobody would ever think that this was going to hit. Now it's like 300 million, three different funds. They have the only Sukuk fund. They have a Sharia real estate fund with us, a, a Sharia S&P 500 with the full license. And their little $80 million RAA is now almost 400 million all in because they embrace the ETF wrapper to get the distribution, to get the access. It, like the wirehouses call us about it. Like Wes and Jay can tell you, uh, I mean, Gary can tell you, like it's freaking hard to to get the uh, the wirehouses to call you. So that's my sleeper hit. That's the one that was out there for six, seven months, and then uh, college radio made it a hit. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And, and Garrett, what about you? Well, Robo is certainly the one you know that we're most known for. One of our biggest you know individual funds. Um, EMQQ was another one that was really kind of the first of its kind when when we did that. It's it's the you know the Amazons and um, those kind of companies of the emerging markets, and so it's really an interesting thesis there that really took off and and was interesting. You know, I'll say one of our other you know bigger clients that has turned out to be a really interesting model is uh, Cabana, and so they've got eight funds with us at this point, but they're an SMA manager, and what they did was converted those SMAs into ETFs. And so they're running the same strategies they ran as SMAs in ETFs. So what they're able to do is give their clients a much more tax efficient vehicle, a lot lower trading costs when they're just trading, you know, the ETFs themselves and they're underlying our, our other ETFs. Um, same strategy, just a lot more tax efficient vehicle. And that's been a really um, interesting thing to, to be a part of. And, and it's been a big um, kind of success story. We're seeing a lot of interest in that space. And uh, my question for you, uh, just to pick you as a proxy amongst the three, what percent of the pitches you hear end up becoming an ETF, roughly? I would say under 15%, maybe 10%. Um, look, there's, there's the era of Field of Dreams is over, right? You can't just build it and they'll come. I've tried that. Like I tried it with Garrett, right? Uh, and we, he was a great person to work with, right? Before we were a white labeler, we used a white labeler. And um, had I listened to Eric, I'd be 
quite a bit more richer. You know, we did the TETF, which was the ETF that tracked the whole ETF industry. And Eric said, you should have kept that. T- you should have got the ticker meta. Um, I really wish I would have. Uh, but by the way, hold on. Joel, Joel, Joel needs to know this. I advised him to use meta. Mark Zuckerberg paid yeah. Will Hershey around Hill, the equivalent of a small Caribbean island for that ticker. We would, Mike wouldn't even be on this call right now. If he had done that and listened to me, Joel, what do you think of that? I mean, I'm going to say that there are 10% of uh, things that come out of your mouth that, that make broken the clock yeah. is right. Tw- okay, I'll, exactly. I'll take it. At least I'm right a little bit. All right. Um, go ahead, Mike. You, you, Sorry. you were so, you were so right. Um, but you know, my problem was I had the wrong product for the wrong time. Right. And, and you got to be honest with people about it. Um, it all sounded great at the right, at that time, but you know, I didn't have the runway. I didn't have those things. I learned all the mistakes. <laughs> and the beauty of what the three of us do nowadays is because we've made all the mistakes ourselves, we help prevent others from making them. We can guide people through to the the all the necessary conditions that can allow for you to be successful. Um, Wes, I want to ask you that question. You know, what percent do you take on? And I guess... Of the ones you don't take on, are they mostly like one-man shows or, or one-person shows where they're uh, just some guy or, or girl out there just looking to launch an ETF? Or are they like big companies, active managers, let's say, that just severely overestimate the demand for their stuff? Well, I mean, the other guys could probably tell you, you see everything under the sun when you're in this business. And we, we've gotten much better at just putting out information and segmenting to the buyers that we actually want. And, and really our number one thing that we're looking for is culture, right? So if you're coming in, we call them ETF innovators, like the Perth Tolls of the world. You know, I, just for karma's sake, I don't care if you're damn near broke, but if you have a great idea, you have the passion, you have the culture, you got a long game mentality, you know, we're going to probably help you out. Um, um, then on the flip side, like you could be the greatest thing since sliced bread, have billions of dollars, but you know, your compliance nightmare, you're culturally just, it's not like somebody I want to deal with or you're a jerk. We don't care. We're not going to do business with that person. Right. Um, so for us, there, there's a huge aspect of like cultural fit and mentality to win. And it, it's, it's really not, um, as tied into like, you know, how rich you are, how much AUM you are. It, it's just cause we think culture wins in the end. And just to follow up, um, Wes, and then if, if anybody else wants to comment on this, we've talked, and I know you and I have talked about conversion. So there's launching a new ETF for a company, and then there's converting something right into an ETF. And are you seeing more yeah. requests for conversions of, say, mutual funds or separate accounts? And is that something you guys are also doing? Yes. I mean, that's pretty much exclusively what we're doing right now. So, so next year we're going to probably launch another 30 funds and I'd say 90% of them are going to be tied to either mutual fund, hedge fund, or SMA conversions. Cause that's really what we're focused on. Like I said, we'll always do the ETF entrepreneur that shows up with passion, desire to win, but that's not frankly our focus. Uh, we're kind of all in on the conversion game at this point. How about you, Mike? Yeah. I wanted to chime in on this one too. So, um, I was on with a $20 billion mutual fund shop yesterday talking through the conversion stuff. Uh, we're in the process of doing one right now, and I'm excited about that. I would say the first wave of, for all of us the last couple of 
years has been SMA and hedge funds converting, you know, doing that. That one's a lot easier. The mutual fund conversion takes more time and effort. It's not, the playbook isn't as cookie cutter because there's all kinds of aspects to it. Like some people still have mutual funds where individuals have subscribed directly, meaning they don't even have a brokerage account. So when you convert, where do you send those shares, right? So there's, and then you have the issues of if it's a wirehouse, are they going to let the ETF stay on if they're no longer getting their, um, there's a proper word for it, but I'm just going to call it kickback. Uh, and so I've seen a lot of interesting things happening here. Some really cool things that have come up though lately. There's one that we're talking to that's a mutual fund that's uh, kind of short biased and it's the type of thing that people want to trade. But since uh, the mid 2000s, where we had all those issues with mutual funds, people can't trade them anymore. If you buy them, you have to hold them 30 days. That's not true at an ETF. So it like totally makes sense that they would convert that mutual fund to an ETF because the ETF allows for trading, like uh, allows you to get in and get out and optionality and all that. We've also seen like the success we had with Gotham, Joel Greenblatt's company. He created an ETF that was the core equity holdings in his mutual funds. So he's got five or six mutual funds. All of them have the same core equity holdings. And then they have options on the edges for different buffers within those mutual funds. Now, by having an ETF that he just holds in the mutual fund, he's literally passing on the benefits, the tax benefits of the ETF to the mutual fund holders. Um, So there's more than one way to skin the conversion game is kind of the point, right? There's, there's different aspects to it and different benefits. And Garrett, how about you? What are you what are you seeing uh, in this conversion conversation that that's of note? No, it, it's exactly the same, right? I think we're all having the same conversations, you know, <laughs> probably with the same people in some cases. But you know, I, that's what we're seeing as well, right? People, the SMA conversions, the hedge funds, and then lately, more recently, it has been the mutual fund aspect as well, where you know it's just a better wrapper. I think we're all obviously believers in the ETF wrapper and, you know, the, the mutual fund industry as a whole continues to see outflows and those are, those are coming to the ETF world. And so, you know, we're kind of on the front lines of that, I would say, and um, seeing the exact same thing that these guys are. We've got a lot of conversations going on right now, a couple of filings coming um, with, with some conversions uh, for next year that um, it's just going to be the way, the way it is going forward. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
Okay, so how big is this conversion wave going to get, Eric? So uh, everything you guys are saying is music to my ears because we went out uh, 18 months ago after DFA. This was like a this was a huge moment in my opinion. DFA, huge name, converted an ETF. Um, Guinness was the first, but DFA was the first big boy. And I, we wrote a note saying that this is going to be over a trillion dollars converted in the next 10 years, and there'll be hundreds of funds. Right now, we're at about, I want to say, 35 conversions at about $63 billion. So I guess, Garrett, um, you know, you think we might hit a trillion in 10 years? I do think that. Yeah, I do. The, the ETF wrapper is just such a better vehicle that it, it really cannot be ignored. And if you're a mutual fund company and you're not thinking about this right now you're you're behind the curve um your shareholders um and investors you know need this need this wrapper and so i think that's you know really going to be a huge driver of this and and these assets coming out of the the big fund complexes and and into their own etfs okay wes i'm going to bring it back to you and i i want to ask we we talked about um indies there um and you know you you mentioned perth I want to talk about the dynamic of like the indies, like her and some of the others that we mentioned, versus the more institutional players like the Goldman. How, how is that going to play out in the white label stuff? Because if the the Goldmans and the J.P. Morgans of the world just keep coming and asking for more boxes, like how much room will there be for for indies going forward when when those institutional names throw around so much money and have the platforms they have? So I always tell people that with boutiques, they live on being fast, which is an acronym because I'm from the military. And that's basically being flat, authentic, social savvy, and a thought leader. And so I do not think that like, let's say Larry Fink is like, hey, I'm going to go launch a freedom fund. Does anyone believe Larry Fink cares about freedom? Of course not. Everyone knows Perth Toll lives and dies on freedom. Right. And do you want to invest with the person who wrote the book or do you want to invest with the person that, you know, talked about the author who wrote the book? Like most people, if the book is reasonably priced, are going to want to buy the book from the actual author. So I'm always evergreen bullish on authentic people who do what they say, they do things right and they price their products affordably and reasonably. I don't see how the big monster firms can ever break that, right? Boutiques survive for a reason. They're better at their job than monster product manufacturers. Mike, you want to you want to fight back on that? Uh, I want to say I'm not scared of Goldman at all. I, honestly, I think they're going to have a tough time with this. Um, this is a headache business. This is the type of thing where you've got to have really great people. There's only so much automation any of us can do because we are fiduciaries at the end of the day. Like this is not, this is not um, some retail widget business. This is a 40 act or 33 act fiduciary business where you can automate a lot of things, but you can't automate out that compliance component and you can't automate out that people component. So I don't see any threat to the kinds of people that we're talking about being sold Goldman instead of us. I think Goldman did this because they see the wave. They know, they know that the average investor under 30 can't even buy a mutual fund because their money is at Robinhood or SoFi or public um, or whatever. 
And those places aren't even set up for mutual funds. You can't, you can't even put in five letter tickers. Their, their systems don't even allow for it, right? They don't have these contracts with all this fat and, and extra money be, to be thrown around. Um, honestly, I, I think in uh, three to five years, Goldman's going to have to come by one or all of us. Uh, okay, well, that's a that's a good transition to Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's why Wes is hey, there well, already. <laughs> yeah, you guys are all over the place. Exactly. Wes is in Puerto Rico. Mike, you're in Long Island with Billy Joel, and uh, Garrett, you're in Oklahoma, right? That's right. Garrett, let's end with you. Uh, we'll close this out. You know, you kind of kicked all this off back in the day, uh, putting out those funds. Um, is this business grown like you thought it would or more so and where do you see it going you know it it has grown more so than than actually i thought it would have uh, originally it's um it's really not a niche kind of business anymore originally that's how we thought about it was launching niche or thematic funds and the acceptance of the etf um has really just grown so dramatically that you know we launched funds for all kinds of issuers you know we launched funds for UBS we launched funds for Alliance Bernstein we launched a physical gold fund for the government of Western Australia you know we had half a billion dollars in gold bars stored underground at, in the Perth Mint in Australia so it's really this huge spectrum of players in this and that's only going to get bigger you know and to the point about Goldman you know jumping into this as well you know, our view on that is that it's really Goldman looking probably more for trading revenue, right? They're, I don't think anyone's convinced they really want to be a white label issuer. I think they're looking for a way to get a piece of the trading uh, business out of this. If you try on their website, it all it says is to contact your Goldman representative. So you can't even do it if you're not a Goldman client with them at the moment. So to Mike's point, we really don't see them as a threat. We see it as just another validation of people wanting to get into this industry. So I think it, it's really only going to grow significantly you know, the world continues to shrink. Trading products continue to be able to be spread around the world. Lots of different um, areas and avenues. You know, you've got folks in Europe doing similar things now. You've got Waystone has just gotten into this in Europe, uh, obviously a huge name over there and and doing interesting things. Han is over there. So it's really, um, you know, I think the growth potential is, is still just massive for all of us. Okay. Going to ask a question of each of you. Mike knows what's coming. It's our favorite kicker question that we ask on each episode of Trillions. Mike, I'm going to kick it off with you. Your favorite ETF ticker other than your own. And I got to I got to admit that I you've had a great one before. I can't remember it, but you can't repeat it. And you can't use anyone <laughs> in your stable of white label yeah, yeah, yeah. ETFs either. I I, t- I totally get it. Oh man, favorite ticker right now. Whew. Man, I should have remembered that this was coming. So, you, Magnus, you can edit out me uh, floundering here trying to think of one. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to go with the, the original one that my partner Guillermo did, which was Lit. Uh, oh, that's, that's a Global X one. Amazing. Right? It's very clear what it is, and it was ahead of its time, and it was one of the first thematics. And it always reminds me of uh, how I got to build this company because both Guillermo and I came from the outside this industry. And we met at Global X and built title together. Wes? Uh, you know, I have to give a shout out to Meb, probably in his marijuana fund, Toke. Yeah. Uh, I, I always found that one to be pretty uh, entertaining. Also, the fee on that is 0. 0.420. Oh, I wonder where that came from. <laughs> that that ETF was seriously inspired. Uh, Garrett? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think um, one of my favorite just tickers is Jet. Super easy to remember. 
descriptive, um, pretty good. Uh, we do have some uh, that we sub-advise that we didn't launch, but we sub-advise for Roundhill. And those guys have great tickers. You know, they've got weed. They've had, they did have meta. Uh, they, they do a really good job with theirs. Mike, Garrett, Wes, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weckershow. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.